You are listening to Sonic Symbolism, where Björk explores her emotional landscapes, the textures and timbres of her albums. With friends, author and philosopher Otni Eir and me, musical curator Ásmundur Jónsson. This is episode three, Homogenic. I think I was very aware of somehow when I was in London that it was very hyper lifestyle, but I knew also it would not be for long. It was almost like my subconscious knew that I would do it for a short time. Then I went to Spain and it was kind of great to get just peace and quiet and be somewhere remote. So all you could do was make music. The words that describe homogenic are warrior, active. All these accidents that happen follow the dot. Coincidence makes sense only with you. You don't have to speak, I feel. Volcanic. Volcanic. Confrontational. If you forget my name, you will go astray like a killer whale. In a fire. I'm a tree that grows Icelandic octet beats. Think you'd name you something? Well, I've got plenty. You're the one who's missing out, but you won't notice until after five years. If you live that long. Cosmopolitan Icelandic contrast. Icelandic octet. I'm going hunter. I'm a hunter. I'm a hunter. Patriotic. 
Beat. After the experience of becoming world famous so suddenly, having met artists from all over the world in London, Björk moved to a small village in south of Spain to work on her next solo album, which was to be entitled Homogenic. In the beginning of our talks by the seaside in Reykjavik City, in her home, she explains the symbolism that both shielded and opened up her sonic world at that time of her life. homogenic and if we just start by the archetype who was this like what if you yeah. see this work as a person or or, or mm-hmm. like this archetype or like this uh, being uh, who do you see i think homogenic i looked at her as a emotional warrior that's how i was defining her at the time and someone who is uh, not with a weapon, not to destroy, but to confront people and try to unarm violence or weapons. And I think for me, it also continued with the character that is in Bachelorette. Mm-hmm. And I think that lyric maybe captures most the sort of narrative of that sort of persona. And somehow the lyrics, because they were most personal, I couldn't write them myself. Okay. It's like a strange contradiction. So I did that with sitting down with Sean tried to kind of almost make fun of this character. Like for me, it was almost like comedy because that character, almost the most extreme side of me. And I think we are all like this as humans, that at any given time, every two years, we probably completely change. Every two years, we are still completely the same. (laughs) And then every two years, there are sides in us that are kind and tolerant and beautiful and gorgeous, but also parts in our characters which are like over the top and very annoying and ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And I think for me to write the lyrics with Sean of Bachelorette was almost like a ridiculing this character. It has sincerity, but it's also making fun. But it is a, like a warrior of love.
I mean, for me to go on stage and look people in the eye and say, I'm a fountain of blood in the shape of a girl. Yeah. It's like, it is very beautiful, but it's also kind of ridiculous, you know. Around this very beautiful text in Bachelorette, it's very poetic, very narrative also. But the rhythms, you are you are making like new ways of presenting music at that time, like new ways of enveloping both the melodies and the texts. Could you tell me a little bit about that? Well, I felt a little bit like post was almost like school. So it was kind of like almost trying these things out, but then Homogenic was the album where I moved to Spain and it was like a statement, like I'm going to go here and I'm going to isolate myself and I'm just going to make music and an album, which is the opposite. So instead of post was like cornucopia, it was like, oh, let's go back and concentrate everything into one point. So for me, Homogenic was one flavor and also had like a contradiction inside it, which I I liked because in interviews, everybody's like, oh, you're this elf and woolen sweaters and you know, all the cliches about Iceland. And I refused to participate in it. Mm-hmm. And I always said, no, I've never seen an elf, like, and this kind of sentimentality that people wanted to force on me. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not like that. People who are connected with nature, nature in Iceland is not sentimental. It's very, very raw. Yeah. So I think for me, I wanted the music to be very patriotic. I wanted to try to invent beats that were volcanic, okay. that were techno and volcanic. I wanted to go back to Icelandic romantic string songs and melodies that I knew from like choir music and from songs that Icelandic people sing by bonfires. But at the same time, I wanted to have the contrast there Mm-hmm. So instead of having the album cover where I was would be, you know, wearing an Icelandic sweater with elf hair or something, <laughs> I don't know what yeah. <laughs> it would be, mm-hmm. I wanted to give it a twist. So when I asked Alexander McQueen to do the cover with me, I said, okay, let's have Mexican jewelry, Asian clothes, South American this, you know, from all the continents, Mm -hmm. you know, European manicure, and then have it futuristic, you know, have the contact lenses, so it's also like sci-fi, because also what I was really not liking was people who were obsessed with Iceland, they were like, oh, civilization was a mistake, we should all go back into our caves, and something that we worked with later, which was not to go back to nature, but to go forward to nature. 
so I went to Spain and, and was in a studio there for one year and in a way made the most patriotic album I had made yet at that point in my life. But somehow I could not make it in Iceland. I needed the distance. Mm -hmm. I needed to be in Spain and somehow be homesick and, you know, re recover <laughs> after having been hundred times more extrovert than I actually am and just kind of go really introvert and very solid, as solid as I could be. Looking back at it now, after being in London for a couple of years and feeling like part of something that was like a zeitgeist to somehow try to mix together something like zeitgeist and Iceland. Post was more all the collaborations I was in, in London. And then homogenic was more the relationship the conversation between me and myself. Mm -hmm. And I decided that I was going to go really selfish and just make it like a me album and to almost make my uh, passport or something. Right. Like what is the grown-up me. Debbie was more the child and the teenager me and the maybe the girl who I had ignored while I was in all the bands, so she could run free, totally. <laughs> and then when I finished doing that, it, it was over, and I needed to catch up with myself, you know? All that no one sees, you see what's inside of me. Every nerve that hurts, you heal deep inside of me. Ooh, you don't have to speak, I feel emotional. Landscapes, they pass on me, a confused child. A riddle gets all. Homogenic takes the listener back to Iceland in the search for Björk's roots. It is about exploring both Icelandic culture and nature, the two worlds of its past and future expressed with acoustic and electronic sounds. Björk said it was time to make an album where I search for my musical roots, exploring the border between nature and the city. Homogenic has distorted beats with volcanic qualities and an Icelandic romantic string octet. Let's talk about the sound world in your musical creativity. In Yoka, the second song on Homogenic, you work with parallel fifths, which is common in Icelandic traditional music. Is that correct? That you were influenced in yoga by this tradition? Yes, I think so. I think especially things like Tvisöngur, 
I think Iceland is one of the few places where this is done or was done, where people sing in fifths. And this is something that inspired a lot of musicians uh, like Jón Leifs and Jórum Vidar and a lot of the Icelandic composers of 20th century. And uh, I just decided to be very um, blunt with this. <laughs> like that, yes, that's what I'm gonna do and do music with fifths. So yes, I was definitely very conscious of it. During the time leading up to homogenic, I remember that you made a comprehensive analysis on chamber music. You mentioned Jon Leifs earlier and his string quartets are quite important in Icelandic music history. Did that influence you when it came to working on the string arrangements? I mean, you did use double quartet or the octet mm -hmm. on your tour and yeah. also on some other recordings and even bigger string orchestra as well? Yes, definitely. I was listening a lot at the time to a lot of string quartet music. You know, mm. basically for two years, you would come to my house and it would be like intolerable. I would only listen to string quartets. <laughs> So I was listening to Ravel and Debussy and, you know, like, of course, the most famous ones, but then also a lot of Jon Leifs. But I, I realized after my experience of being on stage for a thousand years that uh, a quartet with techno beats, it would just die I see. Yeah. On, on stage. So you would have to put those microphones, clip them on, and then the balance with having to make them so loud it would give um, sort of a distortion, you have to over magnify thing and it wouldn't be beautiful. No. But somehow just to double each voice made more sense with the techno beats. So it was in a way double string quartet just to, that they had some ammo <laughs> because the beats were so aggressive, you know. Yeah, no, it was interesting to see them perform Pluto on stage, so to speak. felt that you have such like an uncanny strong sense of timings of like uh, you meet people that are really connected to nature and they know every time there is like this flood coming they can read the nature so closely that they know where the sea is coming up or when it's going down or when the weather will change and so on i've just felt that you are really sensitive to such like natural cycles mostly maybe like creatively could you explain this for me? Like, how come that you, is it something that you can put into words or? Yeah, thank you. I mean, I admire that in you too. 
well, I, it's maybe in me and in every artist, mm -hmm. in every human being maybe mm -hmm. like this, somehow you have those cycles in yourself. But I must say, I was not aware of it. Mm -hmm. So in, in when we started discussing uh, projects, we were just like making not even artistic projects, but uh, mm -hmm. nature protecting projects. Yeah, I, I got really much more aware of those Timings. of those timings. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, who taught you this, or how how come that you somehow mm -hmm. could you please teach yeah. us? <laughs> okay, <laughs> tell us. Um, I don't know to be honest. Um, I could speculate today. Probably, if you ask me this in a year, I will probably give you a completely different answer. But today, I would probably say that maybe my mother pushed me a little bit too early to put out an album when I was 11. Mm -hmm. And I was not ready. And I was lucky enough to be in an environment on a small island with a very small audience and with a mother who listened to retreat, you know. Okay. And I really hated it as a Scorpio child with Scorpio everything, introvert person to go walk into a bus and people, everybody knows who you are. It really felt like strip show or mm -hmm. threat. It's threatening. Yeah, like 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 being naked in a public place, very aggressive. And I, because they wanted to do another album, and I said no, I, I don't want to do another album. So I retreated, and I think in my mind I was like, I will never do this again, kind of thing. And I kind of blamed it on how megalomaniac it was. You know, how can a whole album be just about one person? And it doesn't make any sense because there are always people behind the curtains doing it, pulling the strings. And then this person comes and you put that person's face on the cover and it doesn't add up. You know, I will never do that again unless it's justified, mm -hmm. you know, that it is a fully developed music that wasn't just done by someone else. Like if you have someone on a cover that did make everything that's inside, you know, it's mm -hmm. not the truth. Or I felt like a um, charlatan or, a, you know, like I was, it's a lie. So when you feel that some elements is synchronized, you mm -hmm. can do it. Yeah. And you should do it because later, then comes the punk element also, just do it. You don't have to think too much about it or analyze it. You just have to do it. You have so to go for some, it. You, you have to go for it. Yeah. 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 And also, maybe also being in a band in the background for 10 years shows you that there were a lot of amazing songs. I still cry over the songs of Cook, the band I was in. Yeah. Because the best moments we had was in some chaotic punk club in Berlin. We never filmed a show, you know? Okay. We never documented that. Mm -hmm. But then we went to some studio and, you know, that was good too, but it it was different. Okay, it didn't capture the, this right spirit where it all was synchronized.
But then there are like things that take time and you're working on some melodies for a long time though. So mm-hmm. there, there seem to be like different timings also, yeah. like working processes, like some are slower. Yeah. But it's like the... That's beautiful. Wh- yeah, beautiful question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, or I, I mm-hmm. witnessed that, that like some are really much slower yeah. and, and they are not stillborn. I mean, so, so there yeah. is, uh, I'm not contradicting you, but I'm, it, it, it seems to be a little bit complicated, this... This feeling for this momentum, mm-hmm. and I've never actually really understood like this momentum. I just understand it when you somehow describe it with your hands. But like, what is this momentum? Just this word, and <laughs> it's a beautiful. No, it's a beautiful question. No, I mean I think I I see it with you too when you are doing poetry book and you wait another year and and you you have patience, you know of. of the gardener. Yeah. The rose will not bloom this year, it will bloom next year. Mm-hmm. And I admire that about you too. But yeah, I mean, I, I like to think that with each album there is always one thing that takes a lot of, lot of time. And I actually really enjoy that. And then you wait with the same song maybe, you will wait for the right day to sing it. And then you will wait and wait and wait and wait and wait. And then certainly after like Two and a half year, you wake up one morning, and today is the day, and you do them on take. Okay. So it it is. I do like singing when it's really you feel you're in the moment. It's like a real time. It's like the rawness of you can hear the person think and feel and breathe and you know with errors and being a human being. So we go back to the strings maybe. Collaboration with Teodato that starts with the string arrangements on Isopel on post. Mm-hmm. But on homogenic, it's kind of he's watching over your shoulders and you are doing the string arrangements yourself. I was listening to this uh, the other day and it is quite different. The string sounds on Isopel and Bachelorette, I find. When we did Isopel together, I played him the chords on the piano and he took that and arranged it. But I think also the flavor of Isopel and Hyperpalette, you almost wanted to be some like sugar, like not disco, but the strings, we wanted them to be quite euphoric. And then on yoga, all the notes uh, come from me, mm-hmm. but he wrote it out and decided, okay, the, the violin does this and the viola does this. But the sort of idea of string octet and the sort of to have the sound really not sugary, really like lava or like quite confrontational and angular, like string quartet usually are when you listen to them at home. The, the sort of strength of them is that they're very confrontational and almost psychological or it's not um, sugar on the dance floor. <laughs> it's like the opposite, not pleasing. <laughs> Thank you. 
Set somewhere that the string arrangements did enable you to unite your musical universe with the academic at that time. Yes, I actually invited to Spain eight Icelandic string players, mm. and a lot of them were the same age as me and went with me to school at the same time. Like when we toured as well, it was very cathartic for me because we would. In the after parties, after the shows, you know, in the hotel rooms, we were playing each other music and almost, for me, healing this gap between and understanding maybe what would have happened to me if I would have continued school, you know. <laughs> Not that I have never regretted that, but, but just to understand that maybe that classical music, of course, has a lot of diversity. Mm -hmm. There are people that are very perfectionist and controlled and there are people that are very raw and passionate and there's all kind of way to approach classical music as well and to have your character or individuality involved in it. With homogenic, the thing that took longest time was the beats. And I think what kept me sane in doing the post tour, which took a very long time, was that I hired an engineer called Marcus Drafts and I set up a studio in my house and I wanted volcanic beats. So I played them some references and then for a year and a half, he was just working on that. And I would come and I would say a little bit more like this, a little bit more like this, throw away most of it. Okay, these two are great. And then I would go and tour ACO or whatever, come back. So by the time when I went to Spain, I had one and a half year of beat making. Mm -hmm. So I had like 100 beats actually in a bank. Okay. And we numbered them. Each beat was like one bar. So when I had the songs to go to Spain, for example, when I made yoga, I could put beat number 27 in the verse and beat number 69 was the chorus and beat number two was the intro. Okay. All the volcanic beats in homogenic, they all come from this uh, volcanic beat bank. 100 volcanic beats? Mm -hmm. Okay. And were there like other beats also that had other natural references? Yes, then I started working with Mark Bell mm -hmm. and he came to Spain and he did more the 909 beats. What's that? Uh, that's a drum machine <laughs> called 909. Surprises us all 
The best thing he did on Homogenic was the beat to Hunter. Okay. Which uh, I still today, the 909 drum machine programmers talk about it as one of the best programmed 909. <laughs> and I'd like to say to those people, it was done in one take. He's <laughs> the champion on 909. And in a way, Hunter is the exception on Homogenic because that was maybe the song reference to Spain. Because we were sort of joking and listening to Ravel's Bolero. And Mark hadn't heard that song and I played it for him and, and he was like, oh, okay, and just did the beat to Hunter. It's genius. Also did the beat for alarm call and immature. So he did the beats that were not like volcanic. Yeah, but like what was the description? What did you ask him to do like? I actually decided to bring him in because we had a connection. Mm. And I, I tried to, in each album, try to introduce guests and try to represent them as equals, you know. So for me, Mark Bell was almost like the sort of guest person. So he is somehow transcribing or what's called Avrita, uh, emotionally transcribing you with this machine or could we say that or is that like old fashioned to? I think that's beautiful way to put it. But in this case, I just wanted Mark Bell to be Mark Bell. Okay. Yeah, it's a different thing. I invited him because he is a genius and he I wanted him just to be him I didn't want him to especially in homogenic I wanted an equal the deep connection that formed between me and Mark Bell came maybe from you know, me going to raves <laughs> in Manchester in 88, 89. Mm. So we had this kind of mutual uh, obsession with what was going on in this area and in this world, he's, you know, he's a giant. We okay. met in 88 and he passed away in 2014. So, I mean, that's like 25 years. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So, I mean, of course, some albums was just one song or something, most of them. But he was the one that continued when I would run into trouble at the end of an album and like, fuck, how do I do this? 
I could talk to him. And he was not a man of many words, if I remember right. <laughs> I just met, uh, saw him once. Yeah, he very, very introvert. So, yeah, definitely two introverts communicating, but one of them learned to be an extrovert <laughs> artificially. Yeah. I remember actually in yoga, a lot of people think he did the beat, but he didn't. That came from the volcanic beat mm. bank, but he did the baseline that is in the choruses. And for me, first time I heard it, it was not in the right key. Mm. It was like a fifth out. And fifth, like a lot of people know, they work well together, you know, it harmonizes. And I remember hearing, I was like, Wow, that sounds really strange. Like I understood it gave it the pep that the chorus needed and it was perfect. But for me, it was a fifth out. And now I, I cannot even imagine it being any other way. Wow. But he was right, you know, he opened it up a little bit by not keeping the whole song in the same key, you know. Isn't it quite rare to meet somebody, on the, like an artist, with whom you can do this? Just make something that you could not imagine mm -hmm. or think of yourself? Mm -hmm. I think so. I mean, I haven't met that many, at least in my lifetime. And still, I feel like I've been blessed. I think it's also, you know, the magic of okay, you can be solitaire and a hermit and a monk and whatever and go on a live in a lighthouse on your own and do stuff. That's probably magnificent. But then I feel it would be a shame, you know, because I feel, you know, to communicate is such a, a huge spectrum of our capacity. And what happens in communication can so often push us out of our comfort zone and collision, you know, of two galaxies can really give true birth of new stars. I think to be a good collaborator, you have to be able, it's like a contradiction, of course. If you are capable of doing an album on your own <laughs> in a lighthouse, then you are a very good collaborator. Okay. Which makes no sense. But a little bit like in love, okay then. It's yeah, like uh, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. like the romantic desire that you finally understand and you could even read this actually mm -hmm. on the emotional level in the lyrics on homogenic. This riddle or this contradiction in terms is at work there. That mm -hmm. you have to be self-sufficient, you have to be able to live your solitude mm -hmm. to be with somebody else. And not pleasing, like not somebody yeah. that's really doing that, what he thinks you would like, but really coming mm -hmm. from his direction or her direction. I remember when I heard Post, I thought by myself, what will be the future of Björk's music? Uh, and the future was homogenic. That was kind of quite different record. But what I'm coming to is that every album has been musically the future of the 1D4, 
where we are dealing with different sound world, always musically, but all, often lyrically as well. What I'm saying, you are usually not attributing your pastimes. Mm-hmm. Is that conscious? I think around the homogenic period, I was trying to take me and make whatever my DNA is and make it as large as possible. And I was very attracted to, you know, the group of friends I was hanging out at the time and the books I was reading and the films I was watching. Mm-hmm. It was very into kind of magnifying things, you know, to be like larger than life, you know. Mm-hmm. And I remember when I started doing Vespertine, I wanted to do the opposite. Right. Because I think it's one thing to make an album like that, but then you have to tour the world and always be on like, 11 during the concerts and they became quite sort of cathartic and uh, aggressive and confrontational like this magnifying the ego became very high you know and and the last few concerts were kind of you know if i was a race car it was (laughs) i pushed myself to the top you know Mm -hmm. but i am very happy i did that but i also don't believe in when people just do that for 30 years, it becomes very monotonic. Mm-hmm. So I also knew that I wanted to do that for a little while to see, okay, how fast can I drive this car? And quite sort of megalomaniac in a way, quite mm-hmm. sort of eco energy, you know, which I'm kind of sometimes have issues with when other people are like that. But <laughs> I wanted to document that part inside me, but once in a lifetime, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think you asked in the beginning about the mystical aspect of homogenic. I think for all of us, we have periods where we are very social and we are very like strong (laughs) socially. And then these periods, they they end its course, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think definitely homogenic was very much about both emotionally and also in a musical way about retreating and instead of finding beats that go with the club, you know, like, doof, doof, you know, the party, Mm-mm. you are finding beats that have similar weight, mm. but they are not urban. No. They are rural. And that you can have the same amount of oomph, yeah. but in your own um, home, you know, mm-hmm. house in the middle of nowhere, in mm-hmm. the mountain somewhere. But also with that sort of retreating from the crowd, that comes with it, the, the gift of the mystical. Mm-hmm. Because there is like a void in the beginning, it feels like a void. But then the void fills with who you are as a person, as a solitaire human being. Trust it, maybe 
Sonic Symbolism is a co-production of MailChimp Presents, Talkhouse and Björk and was made by Björk, Oddny Eir, Ásmundur Jónsson, Anna Geða, Ian Wheeler, Julie Douglas and Christian Koons. It was produced by Christian Koons and edited by Christian Koons and Anna Geða. Special thanks to Derek Birket, Katrin Verna Bentley, Zach Magnís, Ivar Kjartansson, Bergur Thorison and Duna Steinun Thorgeirsdóttir. Music appears courtesy of one little independent records. <laughs>